Well, greetings, brethren, and welcome to another Wednesday night Bible study. And I just feel so excited. I, I think Isaiah is my favorite book, my favorite scroll in the in the Bible. It's it's hard to say. It's all the Word of God, and every every book that we study is so exciting. But there is something very very special about the book of Isaiah, and we studied this book. Can you believe it? Two years ago, so we 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 began studying Isaiah two years ago. Uh, we paused, we did second Isaiah chapters 40 to 66, and, and we've covered a number of books since then, but we did say we would come back to Isaiah. And I just feel so blessed that uh, here we are. And, and there's a couple of approaches that we can take to this book. Uh, one is what I'll call the more traditional approach as far as Christians are concerned. And that is, it's a very poetic book. And so when we have a point that we want to make, why not find some poetry in Isaiah that we can quote to support our point? That's one approach. The other approach is to treat this book with incredible reverence, to realize that this man, this prophet Isaiah, actually came into the presence of God and was given incredible vision and understanding. And maybe his vision and understanding far surpasses ours. And, and therefore, we should approach the book with great reverence. And instead of using Isaiah to support any points that we want to make, instead, we come humbly to Isaiah to learn from him. And I think that's why I'm so excited that now as we try to complete, God willing, our study of this scroll, doing now what's considered first Isaiah, chapters 1 to 39, that we'll be able to put the whole thing together and understand what is it that this prophet was trying to tell us. And bearing in mind, he's one of the most quoted scrolls in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus Christ himself, when he, when he was on earth, he quoted the Psalms, which we're studying. He quoted Isaiah, which we're now studying. And he quoted Deuteronomy, which we have been quoting a lot, but God willing, uh, in the future, maybe we'll tackle Deuteronomy line by line as well. So let's open with a word of prayer, and uh, let's, let's, let's get into this scroll. Our Heavenly Father, great God Almighty, we very, very humbly and excitedly uh, come before you. Thank you, Father, for giving us this opportunity and the desire uh, to study this ancient scroll, which illuminates and because of your prophetic word, enables us to see into our future in this very dark and chaotic world. It gives us light so that we can order our steps properly. Thank you, Father, and thank you for Jesus Christ, and Isaiah has so much to say about him. We thank you for him, and we thank you for this salvation and this good news, this great news, this, this gospel news. We pray that we might understand it clearly and proclaim it boldly. Thank you, Father. We also are mindful, Lord, of brethren all around the world who are suffering, but particularly now our brethren in Texas as they are dealing with incredible weather and uh, power outages and terrible uh, accidents, just lots of things happening there, Father. Uh, we pray for your mercy on, on your people. We praise you, Lord. We ask your blessing upon all your people and upon Jerusalem. In Jesus' name, amen. So, brethren, we want to get into the study uh, for today. And one of the things I want to do as we get started here is I'd like to um, begin, actually, not in Isaiah, but in Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah was a prophet who also had a, a tremendous amount to say. And uh, what he says here, just uh, share my screen. He says here, uh, and I, the point that I want to make, well, let me read the verse, Jeremiah 29 and verse 7, and then I'll make my point. And seek the, pe seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captives. And pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall you have peace. And I want to call your attention, brethren, to this scripture uh, to show you that the prophets were political. Isaiah is a very, very political prophet. This is a time of tremendous uh, turmoil uh, in, in the uh, Middle East at this time. And uh, the northern tribes have suffered at the hands of Assyria. And now this is threatening the southern tribes. And Isaiah has a lot to say. Isaiah is very politically aware of what's going on. And he, has a, and he, he speaks directly to the kings and has a lot to say to them. 
And here, after um, Isaiah's prophecies have been fulfilled and uh, Judah has been carried away captive, uh, Jeremiah has something to say, which is very political, which is you, you pray for this city, you pray for Babylon, because some of our brethren, oh, everything's evil, everything's evil, Babylon is evil, everything's evil, you mustn't have anything to do. We, we should be aware. We should see what is going on. And this is why I speak so much about America. Can anybody challenge me on my statement that America is the most powerful nation the world has ever seen in the entirety of human history? Has there ever been a nation more powerful than America and more benevolent? Problems notwithstanding, challenge me. Put it in the chat. Tell me which empire or kingdom was greater than America and also more benevolent. So as we watch America collapse, I have something to say. I have a lot to say, in fact. And you can call me political. I've never voted in my life. I couldn't care less about politics, except how it influences the people of God globally, and particularly Jerusalem. Because what is happening in America today will affect Jerusalem. And God says to Abraham, I will bless all those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And all of us who are getting swept up in supporting the collapse of America, in supporting Marxist movements that are designed to bring down America, to divide America and bring it down, are accelerating the curse of Jerusalem. That this new administration has an agenda to curse Jerusalem, and certainly not to protect it. And, and Jerusalem, in the midst of her enemies, has been able to withstand her enemies because of the support of America. So now as we watch America decline and collapse, Jerusalem is exposed. And many of these prophecies that we're going to read in Isaiah, and in, in if we quote Jeremiah as we go, go through Isaiah, uh, they're, 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 we, we will see very clearly, and Christ himself, we will see very clearly the curses that are coming on Jerusalem. But woe unto us! if we are supporting causes and movements that will cause the cursing of Jerusalem, because God says, I will curse those who curse you. And so warning, warning, we do, the, 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 we do not want to be involved with anything that has to do with the cursing of Jerusalem, except to declare it, to declare it, but to also declare the good news that follows it. So I just want to show you here, brethren, if we were alive in the time of Jeremiah, we would be saying, oh, Babylon is evil, have nothing to do with it. It's, we just need to be very clear. Have not, and Jeremiah would be saying, pray for the peace of Babylon. Because in the peace of Babylon, you will have peace. And in the peace of America, Christian, the Christian community globally had peace. Fun, primarily, of course, there's going to be pockets, so no, no doubt about that. But the Judeo-Christian ethic had hegemony globally. And now as we watch America collapse, that Judeo-Christian ethic is disappearing. And with it, the value of the human being. And so all of you who've been calling and, and supporting the decline of America, I just hope you're ready for what's coming. We're ready. <laughs> We're ready. As I said in, in a sermon previously, uh, sudden death over time, uh, it just means the, the nature of our work changes. Prepare for martyrdom. As the value of human beings disappears from the planet, prepare for, prepare for martyrdom and prepare to declare the hope that lies within you. So we're going to get into uh, Jeremiah. Oh, sorry, into Isaiah, but I wanted to start with Jeremiah uh, just to show that the prophets can, in fact, be very political because they're very aware of the prophetic word and how it unfolds. Let's get into now uh, what I think has become my favorite book, and I hope yours. Uh, what, what's a fascinating book, the entire Bible is captured in this book. And when they found the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the scrolls was the, the scroll of Isaiah. And it was a thousand years older than the oldest manuscript known at the time. And it was almost entirely intact and it matched almost entirely, few grammatical mistakes, it matched almost entirely the, the, the scrolls that we had, few, few copying errors. And so Isaiah is a profound book. And this man had direct contact with God and came into direct 
um, the presence of the glory of God. So let's learn from the prophet Isaiah. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, Amos, which he saw, and notice I've highlighted here, concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So if we were to look at the timelines, and I, I probably should have um, done that, is um, shown the, the, the timeline. And um, I'm just looking on my screen here if I can call up that tool. But this is a long time. This is, this is a long period. Let me just see if I can quickly do this. <clears throat> if we look at Isaiah, the time of Judah, and we see Hosea, Elisha, scroll down yeah here's isaiah here you're going to see him start around 740 bc and go all the way to 680 bc that is quite some that's some 60 years of prophecy 60 to 80 years of prophecy and you can see the tail end of Isaiah, jotham ahaz hezekiah uh and picking up with with manasseh as well so this is a long long time that he reigned <clears throat> And, and this is why there's a lot of controversy around the book of Isaiah that they're trying to say second Isaiah was written by somebody else, first Isaiah, because it's just too long a period. And they're trying to discredit the book. But as I mentioned, and it would be a good idea for you to go back and, and, and study um, second Isaiah, just refresh your memory on what we covered there together, because all of this comes together. But when Christ was on earth, he did not say, what have you done with the scroll of Isaiah? That's corrupted. This is what we, he quoted extensively from the whole scroll. So Isaiah had a long ministry over multiple kings, over some 60 to 80 years. And of course, he, he saw a lot come and go. And, and this is a collection of these visions. But notice the visions are not concerning the whole world. Although he does speak about all the nations of the world. The vision is concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So as we get into this vision and this understanding, his understanding of the gospel, the good news message that must be proclaimed, let's anchor ourselves in this understanding that it's concerning Judah and Jerusalem. This is not a book about America. This is not a book about Britain. This is not a book about Canada, China, Africa, Japan. This is a scroll concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And if we, if we do not anchor ourselves in this fact, we're going to get twisted in our understanding. So let's just anchor ourselves in this. This is a scroll, a vision of Isaiah concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And he received this during these, these kings. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Wow, he's calling the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, we know God created the heavens and the earth, but why would he be calling to witness the heavens and the earth? Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. What has the Lord said? So God has spoken, but what has he said? I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. You can hear the pain in this statement. You, you can hear the love and the cherishing of these children to have them grow up and mature and then rebel against you. So this, this is how the vision, this, this wonderful vision of this prophet Isaiah, this is how it begins. That God is calling to witness the heavens and the earth, how he, and he's spoken, so what does he have to say? This is like out of the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what is in the abundance of God's heart? The fact that he has nourished and brought up children, and they've rebelled against him. Now, why the heavens and the earth? Well, Moses in Deuteronomy, let's go back to Torah. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land where unto you go over Jordan to possess it. So Moses just is calling it, hey, guys, you're going to go into the promised land to possess this promised land. You should be set up as a kingdom of priests, a glorious kingdom of priests to bring the whole world, world to God. But I'm telling you from now, I'm not going over to the promised land with you. 
But I'm telling you from now that you're going to go over and possess this land and you will utterly perish from off this land. It's this covenant that God has with you, which involves the land. You're going to be taken from the land. You shall utterly perish. And he's calling heaven and earth to witness this. You shall utterly perish from off the land where until you go over Jordan to possess it, you shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall be utterly, but shall utterly be destroyed. This is the prophet, the, the prophet Moses. And this is his declaration. And he called the heaven and earth to witness. And now God is calling heaven and earth to witness that these children that he nourished and brought up have rebelled against him. So I think we can get a sense of what's coming based on Torah. He says in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 1, The ox knows his owner, and the donkey his master's crib. So this is, this is the creator of the universe giving us his assessment of, of what is in, 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 in top of his mind and in the fullness of his heart, how he set his heart on these people, nourished and brought them up, and they rebelled against him. And then he's comparing, comparing contrast, my people to the ox, the dumb ox and the dumb donkey. Actually, the, the ox is not that dumb when compared to, to Israel and Judah. The ox knows his owner and the donkey his master's crib. So they can go and they can wonder, and they actually know where to come back home. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. This is amazing. These are the, these are the, this is the tribe or the tribes that have hand, been handpicked by God and set apart from the rest of mankind, set apart as holy. And, and they, they don't have any knowledge. This is the tribe, the kingdom of, the potential kingdom of priests that have no knowledge. The ox has more knowledge and the donkey has more knowledge than these sacred people. But Israel doesn't know. My people do not consider. Ah, sinful nation. Are, are the people of God wonderful? Are they holier than thou? This is God's assessment of his people. Sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. You know, if you, uh, if you have a sponge and maybe you leave it in water for a while so that it becomes laden with water. When you, when you, you pick it up, it's just laden. It's just full of it. These people are full of iniquity. This is God's assessment of his people. You want to make the argument that these people are somehow special and they're very holy people and we have to be careful what we say about them? I just want to quote scripture. I want to believe what God says. What a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers. This is, this is God's assessment. Children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked, and now we're going to get uh, Isaiah's favorite uh, moniker for God, favorite appellation, how he constantly refers to God throughout his scroll, the Holy One of Israel. They've provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They've gone away backward. And I think this is going to be a very important um, thing for us to unpack, that this is the Creator speaking, and he ident as he calls heaven and earth as witness and points out how the iniquity of his people, he identifies himself as the Holy One of Israel. That's right. The Creator of the heavens and the earth, the Creator of the entire universe, condescends and identifies himself with these people. But in identifying himself with this people, he also contrasts himself from this people. This is a people who are laden with iniquity. This is a sinful nation, but he's a part of the nation. So, so he has not abandoned the nation. He identifies himself with the nation, but he identifies himself as the Holy One of the nation. And right there, we get a glimpse into the gospel. Because until this point, all I'm hearing is these people are God-forsaken. They've forsaken God. God has every right to forsake them. 
They do not they do not know him. They've turned their back on him. They've rebelled against him. According to Torah, they must be destroyed. And yet, the creator of the whole universe condescends and identifies himself as part of the same nation, but he's the holy one. And right there we have the beginning of the gospel. That their salvation now becomes possible. That that how, how God will, will maintain his, his covenant with Abraham when he's dealing with a nation that is completely corrupt. We see it right here. It's, it's in his own identity. He's the Holy One of Israel. And so for his name's sake, he's going to act in the earth. And there are, there are going to be a people in the end time who understand what God is doing and who are going to declare this true gospel. And as a result, they are going to be hated by all nations for his name's sake because they understand how he is acting for his name's sake. And so he identifies himself as the Holy One of Israel. But they've provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. So it says here that these people know nothing. They're, they're dumber than an ox. They're dumber than a donkey. They don't know anything. Except, of course, sinfulness. That's what they know. But the Torah says, when Moses was educating them, he says, know therefore this day and consider. God says they don't know and they don't consider. But Moses taught them to know, know therefore this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. There is none else. So God is now calling heaven and earth to witness something that they should have known, something that they should have considered that he's the God in heaven above and upon the earth. There's one God. Israel rebelled against him and chased after every other God. Back to Isaiah. God is puzzled. He's perplexed. He says, why should you be stricken anymore? Why, why are you going through this? It's like, why are you suffering? Like, why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. This is speaking of his people. You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. This is the condition. This, this, this is a write-off. This is a write-off. And yet God is saying, no, it's not a write-off. I'm the Holy One of Israel. I'm going to make this work. I'm going to make my covenant work one way or another. In, in fact, I shouldn't say one way or another. I'm going to make my covenant work. There's only one way, through the Holy One of Israel. There's no other way, because the whole, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. In fact, even Isaiah, this very righteous man, even Isaiah, when he came into the presence of God, he declared himself just a write-off, that, that he, he's coming into the presence of the Holy God, and he's a man of unclean lips. And yet the Holy One of Israel took care of his sinfulness. Even Isaiah could not be the one to save Israel. Only the Holy One of Israel. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in this nation. This, this, is, this is God's God is looking down from heaven. He has nourished this nation. He has brought up this nation. And here's his assessment. There's no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. And you can just imagine how nasty that is, how disgusting that is. You can see the disgusting to look at, the smell of it. That is just pure disgust. And that's what they are. And then he says this. Again, this is the vision of Isaiah. I know we like to apply this to uh, America, but this is the vision in Canada. This is the vision of concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it's very important that we just allow Isaiah to instruct us. Otherwise, we start making things up. And we start making the scripture mean things that it's not saying, that the prophet is not saying. He's saying, your country, whose country? This is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And when Christ was on earth, Matthew 23, he cursed Jerusalem. And he cursed Judah, the cities of Judah. 
And in Matthew 24, the prophecy surrounds and revolves around Jerusalem specifically and the cities of Judah in particular. And here it is. This is, this is he was quoting Isaiah. Your country, Judah, your country is desolate. Your cities, Judah, are burned with fire. Here's your future. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. You're, you're going to watch this happen in your presence. And it is desolate, as overthrown by strangers. You, you, you brought this upon yourself. Desolation and the abomination that makes desolate is going to ensure that this happens and it's going to happen right under your noses. You're going to watch this as you parade up and down thinking you're the holy people, you're the chosen people, and you're going to watch this. Back to Deuteronomy to show how this is inextricably linked to Torah. God, God doesn't just get angry and freak out and lose his temper and do crazy things like turn the Jews into apes and pigs just because he was having a bad day and they got on his wrong side. The, the curse in the Quran of turning the Jews into apes and pigs, where does this come from? And, and Muslims truly believe this, that Jews are descended from apes and pigs. And when they see, you know, you go to the zoo and you see a monkey in there, they, they believe that they're looking at a, a descendant of Judah. Because Allah was angry one day because they didn't keep the Sabbath properly because they were hungry and he was testing them and they needed food for their children and they went fishing and so he turned them into apes and pigs. The Bible is a self-contained unit. From Genesis to Revelation, everything is cohesive. And so this curse now that's being declared upon Judah for their filth, corruption, and abomination that their cities are burned with fire and that their cities have become desolate and that they will no longer be in the land. Let's go back to Torah. Deuteronomy 28, the, the, the chapter of blessings and curses, 28 and 29. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 49, we'll just take a sampling from the Torah. The Lord shall bring a nation against you from far. This, this is what will happen if you do not keep Torah. The Lord shall bring a nation against you from far. From the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose tongue you shall not understand. So God doesn't just freak out in anger. God is faithful to his word. He enters into a covenant and he never breaks it. So he's got a covenant with Moses. He's got a covenant with Abraham. He's got a covenant with Noah. He's got a covenant with David. And he never goes back on any of these covenants. So the, the mighty God, the creator of the whole universe, confines himself to behave within the limitations of his word. It's amazing. And yet there's a bit of a contradiction now because Torah says, the Mosaic covenant says, this is what's going to happen to them if they break covenant, if they're disobedient to the covenant. So that's clear. But at the same time, he has another covenant with Abraham that says his seed will inherit the earth and all families of the earth shall be blessed in his seed and he will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever. And so like, how, how do we reconcile this? Well, we got a glimpse. The Holy One of Israel, he, he identifies himself as part of the nation. But here's the curse. The Lord shall bring a nation against you from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies a nation whose tongue you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young. So there, there as, and, and Christ said when he came, not one jot nor tittle will, will, will deviate from his word, but he did say when he came that he came to fill to the full his word. So all of these curses, we sort of have had dress rehearsals, dress rehearsals, and, and they keep intensifying, keep intensifying. But Christ said, I came so that his, my word can be filled to the full. So the abomination that makes desolate, that's just around the corner, it's going to intensely fulfill all of these prophecies. We're going to see the extreme fulfillment of all of these prophecies. But everything that we've seen historically is the, fa the faithful fulfilling of, of God's word. That... This nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young. And he shall eat the fruit of your cattle 
and the fruit of your land until you be destroyed. And he's going to do that right under your noses, right in front of your face, and you'll, you'll be powerless. And, and just think of this nation. Think of Solomon and, and the power of this nation, that glory that they had through David and Solomon. And yet here's the prophecy that cannot be denied. God's word cannot be denied. Which I'll which also shall not leave you either corn, wine, or oil, or the increase of kine or, or cattle, or flocks of your sheep, until he has destroyed you. And he shall besiege you in all your gates, until your high and fenced walls come down, wherein you trusted. So, so you feel very confident today. Uh, Israel would feel very, the, the nation of Israel, which is the tribe of Judah, uh, the southern tribes, uh, they would feel very confident in their nuclear capabilities. They would feel very confident in their relationship with America, uh, and they're trusting in these things. But this is the prophetic word of God, which cannot be broken. Until your high and fenced walls come down, wherein you trusted, they're not trusting in God, they're trusting in this military power, throughout all your land. And he shall besiege you in all your gates throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. So God does not just act erratically. Everything that he does is according to his word. Back to Isaiah 1, verse 8. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. So think of a harvest, and they would put up these huts while they're harvesting. But when the harvest is completely done, and, they, and, and they've stripped everything, and all that's left is this, this, this cottage or this hut, and there's nothing else. This is what the daughter of Zion can expect. And I think this, this phrase, daughter of Zion, you think of sort of the end time, the, the, the final descendant of, of, of Zion, the, 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 the descendant. But I think all of this is pointing ultimately to the, the end time when it is fully fulfilled. But this is about to be fulfilled with, with the nation of Babylon uh, as Assyria took out Israel. Now Babylon is about to take out Judah. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. And then notice this. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. This is quite a statement that God, God opens up by saying, these people are corrupt. This nation is sinful. It, from the head to the toe, uh, everything thoroughly corrupt, laden with iniquity. This is who they are. Then here Isaiah is saying that there, the Lord allowed us to have a very small remnant. And, and throughout the history of God's people, God's people have always leaned toward corruption. Sadly, God's people have always leaned towards compromise, sadly. Joyfully, throughout the history of God's people, there's always been a faithful remnant that, that have passed the baton from one generation to the next. And Isaiah is saying that there, there is a faithful remnant. And if it were not for this faithful remnant, not perfect, but faithful, if it were not for this faithful remnant, well, we'd have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think we all think of Sodom and Gomorrah and the, the, the extreme corruption uh, that was in these two cities. And, and Isaiah's assessment is, and we, when we studied the book of Judges, we saw firsthand after these people inherited the promised land, how, instead of removing the nations, how they adopted the practices of the nations and became just as corrupt as Sodom and Gomorrah. So he says we should have been as Sodom and Gomorrah. And now hear the, hear the declaration. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. This, this is how God identifies them. This is a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. A vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And God refers to the rulers of Judah and Jerusalem as the rulers of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah. They are, this is like, if, if, if you're trying to get a sense of how, what is God's assessment of his people, here it is. 
To what purpose? Help me understand this. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Why are you doing this? Why are you going through these rituals? Are you trying to fool yourself? Because you're not fooling me. Why are you doing this? Why are you so corrupt? Why have you compromised and deviated from Torah to such an extent, and yet you're still going through the rituals? You're still observing the holy days. You're still keeping the Sabbath and the high days. You're bringing your offerings. You have this sort of religiosity. Why are you doing this? Why not just go wholesale into evil and just completely identify yourselves as, as worshipers of the devil? Why don't you just do that? Well, that would be too painful. That would be too painful. One thing we know about human beings, we like to feel good about ourselves. So I, kinda, I want my cake and I want to eat it too. So, so I want to eat it, but I still want to keep it. And, and so this is how we, so we are. So I want to do everything I want to, to fulfill my own pleasures. But then I want to put on religious robes and beads and stones and, and do religious things so that I can convince myself I'm a, I'm a good person. And I don't have to actually look in the mirror. And we are no different as people with the Holy Spirit than these same people of the nation of Israel. We still have the same carnal nature. And we still want to say, play the same carnal games. And as we head now into this final chapter in the history of man, as we head into these very dark days, this dark winter, we need to get right. We need, we need to be, be straightforward. We are who we are. And like Isaiah, he just said, oh, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe unto me. We need to come to God with authenticity. To what purpose? So we could ask the same to the church. Church, what's the purpose of these religious rituals? Why are you keeping Sabbath? Why are you coming to services? You know, what are we doing? How, how can we do one foot in the world and one foot in the church? What are we, to, to what purpose is this? To what purpose, he asks, is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, says the Lord. I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. Like, what are you doing? Do you think this pleases me? So they're going through all these rituals and they bring these animals and they sacrifice them and they say their prayers and do this on the high days. And God said, look, I'm full of this. I don't need this. You're doing this for me? I don't need it. When you come to appear before me, so three times a year they're to appear before God, when you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand? To tread my courts. Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. So their prayers, their rituals, God says this is an abomination unto me. The calling of assemblies. I cannot away with. It is iniquity. Imagine that. Is it possible that God's looking down from heaven and as we gather together on the high days, God is saying, I can't stand it. I can't stand the hypocrisy. One foot in the world and one foot in the church. And calling these assemblies and thinking that you're pleasing me. I don't need your money. I don't need you to dress up for me. The calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting, which I, I think refers to the Passover. Your new moons, so every month they would celebrate the arrival of the month, and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. This is a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. This is where the whole world should look for the light of God. And God is saying, I hate what you're doing. In fact, they are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. So even when they're praying and they're spreading forth their hands, God is saying, I, I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. Yeah? When you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands, listen, Judah, your hands are full of blood. That's what this has come to. These are some very corrupt people. And they're going through all of this religiosity. They're praying, they're making offerings, they're keeping the high days, and they're murdering each other. 
they're stealing, they're committing adultery, they're committing idolatry, they're doing every evil, but they're maintaining the religious veneer. Wash you. So this sounds like it's over. It sounds like a write-off. And yet there's this declaration of hope. Wash you, Judah and Jerusalem. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. So it's not a complete write-off. God is holding out an olive branch. God is saying, look, we, we can reconcile here. You've rebelled against me, but that doesn't have to be the end of the story. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. We have a lot of, uh, even in the church now, we have a lot of social justice warriors who are seeking social justice. God says to Judah and to us by extension, seek Torah. Seek the judgments of God, which are not going to be popular. If, if you are judging according to Torah, you're not going to be popular. If you find that somehow your judgment agrees with the world, that, that you know, when you turn on CNN, you're, you're thinking the same thing they're thinking, and you're saying the same things they're saying, then you're not in line with Torah. Learn to do well. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. God's judgment. Relieve the oppressed. This, this is the sort of, this is what this is now. This is not social justice. This is God's judgment. And these people are oppressing God's people. They're, they're, they're using the wickedness of the nations around them to oppress even their own people. And God's saying, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Now, this is very, verse 17 is very important because Isaiah says, that if it were not for a faithful remnant, they'd have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, listen, you rulers of Sodom and you people of Gomorrah. And now he begins to outline their evil and how they will not seek judgment. They will not relieve the oppressed. They will not judge the fatherless and they will not plead for the widow. Let's go to Ezekiel 16 to see the sin of Sodom, which a lot of us immediately associate with their homosexuality. But Ezekiel gives us some insight that the sin of Sodom goes beyond homosexuality. Ezekiel 16 and verse 46. And your elder sister, this is speaking to Judah, your elder sister is Samaria. That's the, the northern tribes. They were centered around Samaria. The southern centered around Jerusalem. Your elder sister is Samaria. She and her daughters that dwell at your left hand and your younger sister that dwells at your right hand is Sodom and her daughters. Yet have you not walked after their ways nor done after their abominations. So, so you see how evil Samaria is and Sodom is, but you haven't walked after their ways nor done after their abominations. But as if that were a very little thing, you were corrupted more than they in all your ways. So this is, God is speaking to Judah. You're saying, you see how corrupt Israel is? You see how corrupt Sodom is? You, you weren't like that. Even though I divorced Israel, you weren't like that. You were worse. As I live, says the Lord, Sodom, your sister, has not done, she nor her daughters, as you have done, you and your daughters. Wow. Have you seen this, brethren? Have you seen God's assessment of Judah? That, that Sodom is, is righteous compared to Judah. Behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Okay, now we're going to learn. What, what, what is the iniquity of Sodom? What is it that Sodom did so wrong in God's eyes? Behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Pride. Sin of the devil. Pride. So homosexuality, that, that, that's just a symptom. If we want to get to the root cause, what is this? What is it that went wrong with Sodom? Pride. Fullness of bread. So, so having this abundance and abundance of idleness was in her. This, this actually sounds a lot like the Western world today. Blessed because of the Judeo-Christian ethic and the work ethic and the values and, and, and valuing the human being and the freedom of the human being and the freedom of the human spirit and unlocking that, that creativity 
that resides in the human spirit. And as a result of unleashing that creativity, generating a level of wealth and prosperity the world has never seen. But this fullness of bread and abundance of idleness, it turns on itself. And people with no purpose, no, they can't give God praise for this. They feel guilty. So they want to throw it all away. That's where we are now. But this is the problem of Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So this is, this is like a, a, a social disaster that there's, a, there's, a, there's an ethic that should exist based on the Judeo-Christian or the Torah, and uh, they, just, they just have no regard. They, they become so swelled with human pride that they oppress the poor and needy. And that's where we're heading now. All these people who get swept up in this social justice rhetoric and, and actually support politicians with this rhetoric, uh, we're going to see an incredible level of that. That's what Marxism does, an incredible level of oppression, murderous oppression mass murder. Uh, there's no value of the human life. This is where we're heading. But the only way they can have this is by fooling the simple with rhetoric. So, so you know, there's rule of law, which is the way of Israel, rule of law, where even the lawgiver himself, Moses, is subject to the law. The lawgiver is not above the law. And so the lawgiver is punished by the very, the very same law that he declares. This is rule of law. And our, the Western world has, for the most part, benefited from this understanding of rule of law versus the rule of the jungle, the rule, what, what I call actually the rule of rhetoric. There's the rule of law, and then there's the rule of rhetoric. Rhetoric is I stand up before crowds, and I say what they want to hear, and I spin it with lofty-sounding words. And I just believe in, in all mankind, and, and everybody should be free, and everybody should be prosperous, and and everybody should hold hands together. And, and, and at the same time, I'm slaughtering human beings like there's no tomorrow. And the foolish fall for this rule of rhetoric. And rule of rhetoric means, what's the rule? It's whatever I want it to be. I say one thing today, I say the exact opposite tomorrow. And suddenly, all those people who are supporting me, I just round them up and slaughter them. Why? Because I just feel like it. Because I'm bored. Because I'm powerful. It, it, it saddens me. So she was so proud and had no regard for humanity. This is the sin of Sodom. And they were haughty. They took after their father, the devil. This is the, this is the sin of Sodom. Homosexual rape is what you do when you're haughty. This is just a symptom of the problem. This was not the problem. This was a symptom of the problem. Here's the problem. They were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. That's what happened to them. Neither has Samaria committed half of your sins. So Judah saw what Israel did. And instead of thinking, wow, if the Torah happened to them, the covenant curses happened to them, we better smarten up. No, they doubled down in their iniquity. Neither has Samaria committed half of your sins, but you have multiplied your abominations more than them. And have justified your sisters in all your abominations, which you have done. So they're just a complete, they're laden with iniquity, as Isaiah says. You also, which have judged your sisters, bear your own shame for your sins that you have committed more abominable than they. So, so you feel like you're all righteous and you're looking down at the northern tribes, but then you're worse than them. They are more righteous than you. Yes, be you confused also and bear your shame in that you have justified your sisters. So your, your level of iniquity actually justifies the level of iniquity of the northern tribes and of even of Sodom. So, so Isaiah is not joking when he says, we should have been as Sodom and Gomorrah, except God left us a faithful remnant. Now, this level of iniquity, so again, I go, compare and contrast. According to Muhammad, uh, and the Quran, because the Jews went fishing on the Sabbath when they were hungry, when he withheld food from them all week and they were starving to death, and they went fishing on the Sabbath, 
because of that, God was so angry with them, he turned them into apes and pigs. And yet at the same time, if Muslims are hungry, it's okay for them to eat pork. Compare and contrast that with the scroll of Isaiah, which clearly does not hide. It's not like they went fishing on the Sabbath because they were hungry, because God himself withheld food from them and their children were starving to death. It's not that. It's that they were just laden with corruption. They were filled with iniquity. They did everything they could possibly do to be evil. And what does God say to them? Does he turn them into apes and pigs? No, we have good news for these people. These descendants of Abraham who are in this covenant relationship with God, we bring you good news, your corruption notwithstanding. God says to Judah and Jerusalem, to Judah and Jerusalem, we have to stay in the frame. Let's not go off and start making this say what it doesn't say. This is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He says to Judah and Jerusalem, come now and let us reason together. Says the Lord, come now, let us reason together. We just saw how wicked these people are. Though your sins be as scarlet, your Judah and Jerusalem, Though your, Judah and Jerusalem, your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, Judah and Jerusalem. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, fast forward to Isaiah 45, we, and I would encourage you to go back over the second Isaiah just to keep it fresh because it's been two years uh, while we're studying first Isaiah here. But he says, Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. This is the good news, that God will not go back on his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And although he's divorced the northern tribes of Israel, he says through Jeremiah that when he returns, he's going to make Israel and Judah one stick. So he maintains the covenant through Judah. When he returns, he's going to combine Israel into Judah and and save, and all Israel will be saved. This is the good news. And through the salvation of Israel, we set up the kingdom of priests on the earth that God had imagined in the first place. And the physical human beings on the earth will come to physical human beings on the earth in Jerusalem and and learn to worship God. And the first fruits harvest is going to be beyond the human experience. The first first fruits harvest will be the teachers, the spiritual teachers, that are co-reigning with Christ over this human operation. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. God is the God of Israel forever. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. God has a plan. But right now, as we start off with Isaiah 1, he's speaking specifically and exclusively to Judah and Jerusalem. But ultimately, it's going to be all Israel will be saved, and through them, salvation will be available for the whole earth. Verse 19, Isaiah 1. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Are you kidding me? What is going on here? I just thought we just cataloged how evil these people are, how corrupt they are. It sounds like there's no hope, except there was one glimmer of hope that God identified himself in all of this as the Holy One of Israel. That's what gave me a sense that there, somehow there must be good news in here. And now we're beginning to see that even though these people are so corrupt, God has not written them off. And he's saying, come, let's reason together. And I'm, I'm going to wash you and make you clean. And if you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Even though the Torah says you shall be scattered out of the land, the Torah also says you'll be brought back to the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. You'll be beheaded with the sword. That that a sword has been declared upon this nation. And we're going to see as, as we unpack Isaiah, this is a book about the Middle East. This is a book about Judah and Jerusalem. So we have to pick up a map, open a map, find out where is Jerusalem located, where are the cities of Judah located, and what surrounds them. And is there a nation that has that puts the sword on their flag 
that says we rejoice in beheading Jews? Are there, is there a confederation of these kinds of people that happen to surround Judah and Jerusalem? Because that's what this is about. There's, there's a religious beast. There's a religious beast, a false prophet. But there's a political beast. And they're not the same. And the political beast is referred to in Revelation as the seventh beast and the eighth beast. And they are different from the sixth. So as we do our counting and figure out what is the sixth beast of Revelation, because whatever that is, that's not what we're looking for now. That's gone. And these, the seventh beast is totally different from the sixth, as the sixth was totally different from the fifth, as the fifth was totally different from the fourth. So whatever we identify as the sixth beast, that cannot be the seventh and the eighth. But the eighth can be the seventh. The eighth is a resurrection of the seventh, but the seventh is totally different from the sixth. We need to look on a map, see where Jerusalem is, see where Judah is, see what surrounds them, and how this is going to be fulfilled in the end time, this mass beheading. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. That's one thing we've established. That through studying Isaiah, that's what we've established. That when God speaks, that's it. That's what Abraham understood. It's impossible for God to go back on his word. God is not the kind of being that makes a covenant and then says, yeah, but I changed my mind. No, once he covenants, that's it. And that's what he wants us to learn. How is the faithful city become a harlot? This is quite the question. What is the faithful city? Well, we're talking about Toronto. Is Toronto the faithful city? This is a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So I think just with a little bit of logic here, he must still be, still be talking about Judah and Jerusalem. And the faithful city must be Jerusalem, the city of David. And now it's become a harlot. It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it. But now murderers. How did this happen? And, you know, people from all over the world came to Jerusalem. The Queen of Sheba went through incredible effort to come to Jerusalem because of the fame of Jerusalem and the fame of God throughout the earth. But now it's become a, how did this happen? Well, Solomon was part of the reason, but, but this is what happened. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Look at this, murderers. This is real. These people are actually murdering and oppressing. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Thieves, Everyone loves gifts and follows after rewards. And again, you look at our modern society and political situation today, everyone seems bribable. You saw the previous president in America, couldn't trust anybody. Everybody that he had, I shouldn't say everybody, but almost everybody. I think I, maybe I can say everybody, but it's almost everybody. The closest people to him, everybody that he picked, turned on him, betrayed him. He just, he's not a politician. He didn't understand how this thing works. How do you get the loyalty of politicians? Well, you corrupt them. You, you, you make them bribable. You put them in compromising situations, and then you force their hand, and they have to agree with you. But he just came in saying, I'm doing this, and he didn't have all of these connections, and he bought all these people, generals, everybody close to him, even vice president, it doesn't matter. Everybody turned on him. Because everybody has their price. And that's one thing we see here. In the, this is politics. Princes are politicians here. They're leaders. They're, they have political power. Your princes are rebellion, rebellious and companions of thieves. All of them love gifts and follow after rewards. This is how they make their judgments. What's going to enrich me? Oh, yeah. Let's give multi-billions of dollars to this nation so that I can get a kickback into my bank account. And I, at the same time, it's great. I look like I care for the poor. I look like I care for people, but I'm enriching myself and my family. Everyone loves gifts and follows after rewards. They judge not the fatherless. They talk good rhetoric and fools follow them, but they don't actually do. They don't follow through. They judge not the fatherless. Neither does the cause of the widow come unto them. They just don't care. They just don't care. As it was anciently, so it is today. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, 
And now he calls himself the mighty one of Israel. So after identifying the politicians of the day as utterly corrupt, those who have political power, he now, after first identifying himself as the holy one of Israel, he now identifies himself as the mighty one of Israel. That the creator, the God of the universe, is a part of this nation. He's the holy one of this nation. And now we come to learn he's the mighty one. That, 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 that sets up a contrast. You know, the Holy One of Israel sets up a contrast. Okay, they're corrupt, totally corrupt. He's holy. Now we see that they're powerful and corrupt, but he's the mighty one of Israel. That, that tells me they're coming down. This is the gospel. This is what Christ said, that he's come to lift up the meek and lowly and to bring down the powerful. That's what, that's what we're seeing here. We're getting a glimpse. Therefore, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will ease me of my adversaries and avenge me of my enemies. Like, oh yes, Gentile nations, Moses identified them in Deuteronomy 30 as the enemies of God. But we were just talking about within the nation. We were just talking about the politicians, the political power within the nation. And God, on the heels of that, identifies himself as the mighty one of Israel and immediately says, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of this. I will ease me of my adversaries. They're, 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 they're the opposing force to God's will. And I, I, I will avenge me of my enemies. This is, I, I'm just so excited about the book of Isaiah. This is a, such an amazing book. And it has so much to say about our day and how we can understand the future. This, this seemingly chaotic world. It's not so chaotic once we view it through the lens of Isaiah. So we will uh, pause here, and uh, God willing, we will continue next week. So we got up to verse 24, Isaiah 1. Uh, God willing, we will continue next week with the book of Isaiah. What an amazing, this is the gospel. The, the, Christ said, this gospel will be preached in all the world. And, and he said that on the heels of repeatedly quoting Isaiah as he taught his disciples, repeatedly quoting the scroll of Isaiah. And then he said, this gospel will be preached in all the world. So as we unpack this book of Isaiah, this scroll that Christ uh, uh, quoted from so extensively, let us learn from Isaiah, what is this good news? So that we can be sure to be proclaiming this great news. With that, brethren, I will say good night. What a mighty God we serve, the mighty one of Israel, the holy one of Israel. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.